This is Jared Blumenfeld. Welcome to Podshipad. This week's show starts with a look at Bitcoin, which is both threatening to create an environmental disaster and promising to accelerate the adoption of clean technologies. Here's Laura Nering, 3M's sustainability director. Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining will require to use as much energy in 2020 as we use today in the whole world for everything. So how in the hell can Bitcoin, which doesn't exist in any physical form, threaten to become the world's largest energy black hole? Okay, here's an idiot's guide, or rather, here's a guide from an idiot. So the way that Bitcoins are created out of thin air is through a process called mining. There are no pickaxes in this mining. Instead, there's shitloads of computers all over the world working to solve some kind of nerdy puzzle first created by an anonymous character called Satoshi Nakamoto. Just like in Bingo, the first computer to correctly answer the puzzle gets a prize. That prize is unlocking new Bitcoin, currently valued at $6,000 each. Compare that to $0.08 in 2010. Because these armchair moneymakers wanted to feel like they were actually working, they called this process mining, which clearly it is not. However, just like mining, it has huge environmental impacts because as the price of Bitcoin shot up, more and more computers started competing for each Bitcoin. And like all good puzzles, as Bitcoin values increased, so did the difficulty of the game. This meant that you needed additional computing power to solve new puzzles. The results is loads of gigantic server farms being built all over the world just to compete for Bitcoin. Every 10 minutes, new Bitcoins are awarded to the winning server farms, just like in Bingo. But there's only one winner for each Bitcoin, so all the other losing computers have wasted massive amounts of energy just trying to play the game. Kind of like me with scratches. Most of the Bitcoin server farms are in China, where cheap energy is supplied by filthy planet-destroying coal, which is being mined just to make Bitcoin. The website Digiconomist estimates that creating a single Bitcoin uses the same amount of electricity as my home uses in two years, and a single Bitcoin transaction, me buying frozen yogurt with a small fraction of one Bitcoin, has the same environmental impact as driving from San Francisco to L.A., if I had paid for the same frozen yoga on my Visa card, it would have consumed 80,000 times less electricity than using Bitcoin. Luckily, as you'll hear at the end of the episode, it's nearly impossible to spend Bitcoin on everyday things, at least here in San Francisco. Once data has been written into the blockchain, no one, not even a system administrator, can change it. This creates trust as both the sender and the receiver of the data can be sure that the information hasn't been altered. That's why blockchain is said to be immutable. In today's episode, we'll talk with two cryptocurrency and blockchain experts, Richard Titus and Paul Ellis, who think that these technologies will disrupt industries, challenge how we structure society, and accelerate efforts to save the planet. Richard Titus leads ArcVC, a cryptocurrency hedge fund. Richard has led customer experience for Samsung Electronics. He was a chief of user experience and design at the BBC, 
He was the executive producer of the movie Who Killed the Electric Car? And most importantly, he was a sound engineer on the Beach Boys album Summer in Paradise. And cousin David also joins the conversation because he's just installed a Bitcoin wallet on his phone, which makes him a bit of a merchant banker. So Bitcoin. Yeah. What the hell? You know, <laughs> I think people read the newspaper. Mm-hmm. I do. I don't know about you, David. Like I read it and I get 25 to 30% of what the hell's going on. There's I get lot- about 2%. Right. Okay. And I, and I want to understand more, but the, the reality is I don't even understand the beginning. Hmm. The context of a right. Bitcoin doesn't even make sense to me or the context of blockchain or how I could use it or why I would want to acquire it. So I can't get past that, even though I see everyone else getting hysterical and making money. And David, you're not alone. Here's Ellen DeGeneres expressing her own confusion about Bitcoin. Everybody's talking about Bitcoin. Nobody understands it. It's like a plot twist in a confusing movie. When you're watching a movie and your friends are acting like they know what's going on and you're like, yeah, I do too. And So Richard, after hearing the intro, what else do we need to know? There's a couple of contextual things you need to understand to really understand Bitcoin. The first of which is the first white paper for Bitcoin was read about two weeks after the Lehman crash, right? So there's a there's a sequencing of events that is really important. And to just understand. for non-financial people, Lehman is Lehman Brothers in yeah. 2008, right? The, so the, the financial crash. crisis. Right. So, but as a society, particularly as a Western society, there were some moments of very you know dark danger for us. And I think a lot of people began to sort of question some of the underlying fundamentals of the financial system and really poke at why are you using regional money to pay for global goods? That's a crazy thing. The second crazy thing is that we all think our money is based on something, but it's not. It's no more based on something than Bitcoin. And in fact, the U.S. dollar is a in buying power has been declining since its print. So since the first dollar bills were printed, it has been steadily declining in value. Bitcoin, since the first Bitcoin was mined, we're going to call it 2013, 12, somewhere in there. It's been an appreciating asset because there's a fixed supply. And some are being lost in the system every year. So it's always shrinking in supply. It has a fixed denomination and it's very trusted. So the second thing about money is you can forge money really easily. Blockchain and Bitcoin have breakage, but at a much lower level. And it's not at the fundamental core level, like I'm printing more money and not telling you. So in fact, Bitcoin is not sort of the, it's painted as this anonymous, dangerous thing for illegal transactions. It's actually super transparent, which is why it's super powerful. The reason that cryptocurrencies are seen as transparent compared to regular cash is because of the underlying blockchain, which acts as a public ledger for every financial transaction on the Bitcoin network. And because the underlying code is open sourced, anyone can look at any block in the blockchain and anyone can pull down the source code and read it for themselves. But Richard, at the end of the day, doesn't this transparency just expose that the emperor has no clothes? The Bitcoin is just made up. It has no intrinsic value, right? Money has always been a figment, right? It's simply a medium of exchange agreed by two parties to represent the value underlying. So in the old days, you used to get tokens, which would say, hey, you get this many loaves of bread or this many cows. And Bitcoin is kind of the same thing, right? So it's a digital token, which can be used as a medium of exchange. It can be used to give you access to something. What is the valuation based upon like what when what, supply and demand okay it is Simple the purest economic yeah, but history. here's the issue of supply and demand there's yeah. a bunch of super users they have a lot of coins and that mm-hmm. presents a lot of liquidity issues and a lot of these guys aren't selling coins because they don't want the price of the coins to go down 
-hmm. So it's like artificially increased to a oh, level. Is that any different than gold or security? Well, there's not there's not forty people that control a gold oh, industry for sure. Well, <laughs> it's I mean, actually less. A, so the just Bank so you of know, England owns a lot. Gold futures and gold trading, all the gold traded on all the exchanges uh, globally, is four x the actual supply of gold on the planet. Conceptually, not even reality. Like conceptually, there's less than one quarter of that gold. So we have these these markets are all artificial. And this is no less or no more artificial, but what's interesting about this is that underlying it is a absolute technologically perfect scarcity. So there's 21 million and there are less every day. But my only question, very, very simple question is, if someone mined a Bitcoin and you had 21 million, do you not have 21 million and one? That it, blockchain is basically you're getting credit for helping calculate that number. And because it is known mathematically what the end of the calculation is, it's known that there are only 21 million, not, no more, no less. But we basically have a, a distributed ledger managed by consensus, and that's a really important point. And so the blockchain becomes this amazing, and this is where people, you know, I call them the, the crypto anarchists, get their eyes, get all sparkly as they talk about this for the first time ever, we can have trust. Because in all commercial relationships before, there was no absolute record of truth. Truth is variable. In fact, if nothing in the last three years have taught us in media is that truth is ephemeral. But in the blockchain, truth is absolute, managed by consensus. So there's even a system built in for the management of what truth is. So if I put a note on the network and say, actually, Richard has 10 million Bitcoin, and the rest of the network says I have one, I have one. So if blockchain is all about a recording of the past and encapsulating that in software, the thing that Vitalik and the guys at Ethereum did was add on the most important step on top of this, which is smart contracts. So smart contracts are super simple. Okay. What you pay your lawyers to spend hours and hours and hours drafting mm. will be in software. And in fact, it's utterly reusable, audited by third parties. And you know, I, I tell my kids, don't go to law school because that's gonna be a menial, very low level job for writing what little it bit is of software. Right now. I am one. So, I know, so whatever yeah. little bit of law wasn't written in software already. Why should the average person give a shit about Right. any of this no literally like what why would an average person care about bitcoin so if you have the blockchain to record all transactions or data in cryptographically protected and distributed for safety and managed by consent every transaction every piece of data every information will be on the blockchain because it's the most efficient way to manage trust so so you so would if, the internet, if the internet on media was four maybe five percent of you including commerce of global gdp the internet it's a pretty big thing, like changed all our lives for maybe 6% of GDP. We're talking about a technology that will fundamentally change 60 to 70% of global GDP. And this why will, will it do that? Because all transactions will be here because it is, the, it is Moore's Law is the most efficient and effective way to transact and record history and agree future. John Perry Barlow, who just passed away last week, you know, he used to say this thing, information became free. That was the revolution of the internet. So this is about finally we return with trust back into our lives. Okay, well, so how did this all begin? So Satoshi's thesis was, let's create a new currency. And I don't know if he really intended people to be buying their latte with Bitcoin. I think it was academic. And people thought this was really cool and they started playing with it. And before, you know, a couple of years later, you have some exchanges and people moving money back and forth. Um, and I think for a long time, this would have probably just stayed in the academic, but something called Silk Road happened. And Silk Road was a moment in time where people began buying illicit substances, pornography, you know, all the things you buy in a new technology to sort of, you know, skirt around legality. 
a controversial website which made buying drugs as easy as going to the store. A shady underground marketplace where criminals can sell drugs and weapons free from police intervention. What happened was that happened alongside the sort of post-layman crash, economic crash. You have a generation of young people who grew up where the change they left in their Coinbase account grew in value faster than any retirement account they'd ever had. And before you knew it, these are some of the early adopters, but it was also just a conceptual sense of like, hey, this is more trustworthy. I can audit it. I can see it. It's transparent. These other systems are opaque. Bitcoin is a very efficient system for doing that same activity. Richard, I hear a lot about tokenization. What does that mean? People began tokenizing things. And there are two kinds of tokens in the world. There's utility tokens and there's security tokens. So utility tokens are like a bus ticket. You buy a bus ticket because you're anticipating you may need to take a bus, a, a utility token, but it's not tied to any currency. The other kinds of tokens are called security tokens. And these are literally like stocks or bonds or, or derivatives. And these are instruments of finance created to tokenize an asset. So one of my, to take it back to the environment, one of my deals that I've been working on this year is called Sun Exchange. And this is a group out of South Africa. They're one of the bigger solar developers in South Africa. And what they're doing is doing, uh, uh, they're actually doing an initial utility token offering, but the plan is long-term to do some security token offerings and allow you to finance solar rollout in Africa. As luck would have it, Dana Smirin, our Podship Earth correspondent, went to talk with Sun Exchange today in Cape Town, South Africa. Dana? Hey, Jared. Today I went to talk with Abe Cambridge, the founder of Sun Exchange. I asked him to explain how he's trying to connect Bitcoin and solar in South Africa. We've uh, we launched in 2015 on Indiegogo to build a prototype. Uh, and then three months later, we, we financed the first solar energy project ever funded through cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, we've built a, an MVP platform. We've now got four solar power plants running. We've got about four and a half thousand members, and they're located in 70 countries around the world, uh, all using cryptocurrency or at least earning cryptocurrency from their solar, solar panel leasing payments. Their coolest project was helping turn a local elephant sanctuary 100% solar. Who knew Bitcoin could help the elephants? In general, South Africans are very excited by Bitcoin because it means we don't need to deal with all the BS of foreign exchange rates. Also, on the good news front, it just started raining. Talk to you soon. Signing off from Cape Town, this is Dana Smirin, your very own Podship Earth correspondent. Thanks, Dana. David, you seem very keen to ask Richard something. But what's the difference? I mean, there's almost a hundred different cryptocurrencies now, mm -hmm. more than that. Absolutely. So I look at it and I'm just like, this is ridiculous. 90% of them are garbage. Yeah, but so are there going to be 10 different good token companies? Yeah, so think about it this way. How many stocks are between the NASDAQ, the... Uh, there's like 6,000. There's more than that. So there's about 600,000 globally. Well, maybe there's like 6,000 in New right. York. I'm not as smart as I used yeah. to be. They call so, me Jared's so, ignorant cousin. So. And by the way, so some of those have a lot of value. Some of them have no value. Sometimes the ones that are perceived to have no value actually have value and vice versa. And what's happening... Who with determines their, that they have value? The market. So this is just all supply and demand? All supply and demand. I mean, it just seems like it's like tulips of different colors. It's like well, these are the red tulips. This is really interesting. Tulips. So do you own any stocks? Yeah. Why did you buy those stocks? Because I researched them and I like their businesses right. and I like the prospect of growth and they so, grow 20 or 50% a year. So the difference between those stocks and tokens is nothing. But the underlying blockchain. No, well, one of them has a system of audit, transparent economics, and is absolute in its uh, authenticity. And the other one's managed by bankers. 
merchant bankers. Un, untransparently. Yeah. With total opacity no, and a lot I, of fees. No, I get that part. <laughs> so this is important. They're the same thing. If they're security tokens particularly, they're exactly the same thing. One I just feel like there's a lot more liquidity. More. And to me, that's a big issue. So the market cap of cryptocurrencies today is $300 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, It'll be $300 trillion within two years, my guess. And now a word from our sponsor, Audible. When I quit my job and hiked from Mexico to Canada, the sense that was awakened the most was listening. There are so many sounds in the forest. And as I go to sleep in my tent, the sound of crickets would start and it felt so calming. When I got back to the city at the end of the hike, I felt overwhelmed by the noise. I found refuge in listening to audiobooks and podcasts. Just like reading, when I'm listening to a story, my imagination fills in all the blank space, making it part of my experience rather than a film that does all the work for me. On our family road trip to Death Valley, we all listened to The Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern. It's a fantastical story of a wandering magical circus. We loved how the audible audiobook allowed us to get lost in our imaginations, drifting into Morgenstern's world of acrobats and cloud mazes. It was just so captivating that when we got to Death Valley, no one wanted to stop the book. The Night Circus is now as much part of how we remember our Death Valley vacation as running down the sand dunes. Jim Dale does an absolutely amazing job of translating the breathtaking world of Morgenstern. But who, pray tell, is Prospero the Enchanter? Only the greatest illusionist of his generation, Chandris says. Used to book him whenever I could get my hands on him years ago now. I've also been reading Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker and The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner by Daniel Ellsberg. And here's what's cool. You can listen to Pinker argue why health and happiness are on the rise worldwide and Ellsberg's thrilling exposure of America's insidious nuclear war policy for free. With over 100,000 titles, you'll definitely find an audiobook you can fall in love with at Audible. Audible is offering each of you a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash podship or text podship to 500-500 to get started today. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash podship or text podship to 500-500 to get started today. You'll love Audible and you'll be helping Podship Earth stay on course. Okay, let's get back to cryptocurrencies and blockchain and how they can hopefully do some good for the planet. Early in the week, I got the chance to talk with Paul Ellis, who runs a London-based company called electron.org.uk, who are using blockchain to transform the energy sector and hopefully make it a little greener. Paul was the CEO of Credit Trade and before that served as a captain in the British Army. Hi, Paul. Welcome to San Francisco. Thank you. So many people around the world are moving toward electric vehicles. How will your technology, how will blockchain facilitate um, someone's electric vehicle charging into the grid? And I think we're almost getting to, uh, within a few years, we'll be at a tipping point where it becomes more uh, cheaper to have an electric vehicle than it does to run a, a gas gas powered car. So this is something that's going to happen and it's going to transform the way in which the grid works because right now there the just isn't the capacity on the local distribution networks for electric vehicles to all be charging at once. You have to have some way of coordinating that. And, and in order to do that, there has to be some collaboration mechanism that the different parties 
can agree on. So that's the first opportunity there, is to provide some way in which people can collaborate and people can do so on a level playing field and where it's fair. So if you and I lived on the same street in London or in San Francisco, how would that happen in a in a real way? There'd be an hour where it says, pull, it's your turn to charge the vehicle and half an hour, it's, I mean, people, I think at the moment, just want to be able to charge it at any time that they feel like it. But you're saying that that as as electric vehicles become more ubiquitous, that won't be able to happen. Not without substantial reinforcement of the existing grid. So either we have, we face a, a problem. So either we reinforce at huge expense the existing grid so that everyone can charge at the same time, or we come up with a more efficient way of balancing the charging needs. It makes a lot of sense to create some mechanism for collaboration and coordination. And that's one of the first things that blockchain can potentially bring to the table here. That's exciting. So we talked a little bit about the benefits blockchain can provide to facilitating when you charge your vehicle. Tell us a little bit about getting the energy from your vehicle to the grid and how that complicates the life of regulators and maybe how blockchain could simplify that. Okay, so this this is a great example. So so we have all these electric vehicles that are going to be coming along and they, they're equipped with batteries. And, and batteries, obviously, as two-way flows, they consume electric power as they're charging up, but they then can discharge into the grid. So maybe the uh, battery in your electric vehicle doesn't just help drive you to work or drive you on a trip. It's also potentially available to help balance the grid. Um, so th that's one of the, the first things. If you can have storage and, and battery storage in your home, which is a more immediate opportunity, for example, because it's teamed up with your um, uh, solar panels, um, that's another opportunity to help balance the grid. And this is something that actually homeowners can be paid for. You know, you're providing a service in the way that the big electricity companies have done in the past, and you're part of the process of helping balance supply and demand. So I think uh, blockchain provides a lot of opportunities there for those kind of participations and for recompensing people for being involved. So in the US, we're still reacting to the price manipulations in 2000 that led to Enron. Will this allow more transparency into the system so that that kind of price manipulation wouldn't happen in the future? Uh, it's certainly provided the system is designed appropriately. It's also the, the guarantee of the transactions themselves, ensuring that everyone has the same level playing field access to the energy system and to being able to transact on it. Um, it is inappropriate that um, the larger companies potentially have privileged access to these kind of transactions. One of the aims of providing these blockchain platforms is leveling the playing field for all participants so it's transparently fair. Paul, are you bullish on the ability of blockchain to really catalyze the increased adoption of renewable energies? Uh, absolutely. I think this, uh, this does a couple of things. First of all, it brings people round the table and encourages and incentivizes them to collaborate in, in, in a situation where traditionally they haven't found it that easy to do so. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the technology itself um, provides this, this fantastic opportunity to bring transactions together that would not otherwise happen uh, by providing a, a basic 
uh, layer on which collaboration can be built. And I mean collaboration in transactions themselves. So two good reasons, I think, why I'm very bullish about why this technology will add a lot of value to the energy, energy markets. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. So Richard, help us understand how quickly is this all happening? The adoption curve is really, really rapid, Africa particularly, because people view digital currencies as more trustworthy, less risky, less subject to manipulation, and more liquid and, tra- and mutable to other currencies. You know, you can trade Bitcoin into more currencies than the US dollar today. How long between now and when large employers, including the federal government, in the pay West people? or the East? In the West. Or the West or everywhere else. Everywhere else, I think it's three years. Satoshi not really knowing how prog- how sort of econ- you know, evolution of technology would happen, built this mining function in, which is the using of computing cycles to mine these coins. And it turns out, because every one you mine makes it harder to mine the next one, it turns out that takes a lot of energy. And so mining becomes a sort of energy consumption thing. My view is that mining is an interim step. I could be wrong, but I view it as an interim step as we move to a sort of pure digital currency world. So based on what Paul Ellis said earlier, do you also think cryptocurrencies and blockchain can help accelerate the adoption of clean technologies? So one of the problems with clean tech, green tech, environmental tech, particularly around sort of oil remediation, energy transfer, these are all really unsexy, long time horizon, high capital impact businesses. And there aren't a lot of incentives for people to put money in them particularly when there's other things they can make more money on, particularly when fiscal manipulation makes you more money than actually investing in businesses, which is the sort of, that's the ecosystem we built for ourselves over the last 30 years economically. What blockchain and all of these tokens do is they create a mechanism for funding innovation that strips away that layer of corruption and sort of fees. But what it means is that there's more opportunity for capital A capital could be me or you, it could be big funds, to deploy more efficiently into more interesting, innovative businesses. Okay, so let's let's pick an example. So there's a Superfund site, let's say in Southern California, where you grew up under the shadow of the Matterhorn um, at Disney. So- Is that actually a Superfund site? Yeah, there's Superfund sites right around there. That's awesome. Um, And they're difficult to fund. Yeah. And they they are long-term 50, 100-year propositions. How would Bitcoin allow us to get to a place where investment would accelerate. So how do they fund those now? So right now they fund it through tax revenue from the federal government. Right. But that's really a bond. And and from the polluter paying. Right. So the polluter pays. There's a bond. So it's just financial instruments. Yes. And there's millions and millions and millions of dollars of fees. So I'm going to guess the fee weight there is probably 20, 30% subsidized by our tax dollars. You could tokenize this for a fraction of that cost. And people could buy into the revenue stream, either from the polluter or the or with a government guarantee. And actually, probably a more efficient market could be developed. And you could actually build in incentives, which you can't do in this model, to say, hey, if you clean it up faster or better, or you remediate it in a more effective way, you get a bonus. And the interesting thing about this is that the software, the blockchain plus smart contracts, allows you to do anything you want to do around a contractual relationship financially. So so you could literally say, if you don't clean up this land, you lose it. If you're not using these water rights and the market needs them somewhere else, they stop being yours. Or you can pay less based on a demand curve. And if your demand curve changes, you have to pay more. 
So it's basically a very f sophisticated way of doing a conveyance. And let's actually add one more thing to this and you almost got it. So if you and I make an arrangement, my lawyer friend, what do we do? We write so, it down. Right. And then what do we do? Put it in a drawer. Right. And what happens? It. Yeah. Well, we've done is agree on what we're going to fight about. Software is dynamic. It's active. It's real time. Time of day, that sort of evolutionary arc of an agreement is for completely absent from existing contracts. But in digital contracts, in smart chain, smart contracts plus blockchain, we could have agreements that evolve over time based on changing market conditions, changing behavior, forcing functions, all kinds of things that were never there before. And I don't have to go spend a million dollars on lawyers in a court, it's in the software. So this idea of sort of an, an engine for the sort of tokenization of risk and reward is fantastic for things whose economic payback wasn't super clear before. Okay, so who's investing in these tokens and in Bitcoin? I know David and I have like $100 uh, combined, but um, who's putting the big money in? Most of the investors are millennials. If you look at, I think, some of the most important work being done, both socially and politically right now, it's being done by young people, you know, the ones in Florida. And they are going to vote in a different way, not just with their, their voting level, but with their money. And so if you say to someone, look, I'm going to give you 6% return, you can either put it in a T-bill or you can put it in the solar project in Africa. And oh, by the way, the solar project in Africa also raises up 10% of the population locally out of poverty. Which one are you going to do? From what we've discussed today, Richard, which is 90% now of my entire understanding of blockchain <laughs> um, and cryptocurrency, it actually sounds like it has the potential to completely replace government. Because uh, yes, this is this is what terrifies people. For me, governments, the, the social contract that right. Rousseau and Locke and the others believed in has reached the end of its point because of the single issue of trust. When you ask right. people, why aren't you engaged in politics? Why don't you trust. go down to City Hall? Why don't you go to your state capital? Why don't you go to Washington, D.C.? They're like, I don't trust those sleaze bags, right. right? So trust is, and if you can build in the architecture of the social contract into everyday arrangements about, you know, Richard, I will do this as long as all the chocolate you give yeah. me is fair trade. Right. If it isn't fair trade chocolate, that money reverts back to me. Exactly. You then have a fairly large incentive to make sure that those values inherent in fair trade exactly are part right. of the agreement. I mean, how so many super fun, I'm yeah. excited. How many this super fun sites? the first time I've been excited about Bitcoin. Over time, these the software contracts become a latticework which you can build. That's not existed for a long time for us. Religion used to provide that. Um, sometimes government supplied that. The king supplied it. But at some point, we lost that with the internet. In the next five to 10 years, paint the picture of what we'll be doing differently. So Bitcoin will either be worth 100000 or maybe $500,000 or nothing, which I don't have any conflict in that answer because it'll either be the dominant primary digital currency or it will be discarded for something better. And I can't, I don't have enough data to know which is going to happen. I'm betting that it's going to be the one because we tend to cling to things by brand. It's a pretty strong brand. I think smart contracts will become ubiquitous. And the idea that you used to do this manually will be very odd, just like you know, fax machines. I mean, think about the time. Do you remember that? You remember the moment when you got a fax machine? I do. Do you remember the moment you stopped using it? No. But it was just in your house. I remember day, because actually the funny story about fax machines is, I do remember when I stopped using it, but then when I went to work for the federal government, right. every, they still kept using it. So the internet suddenly replaced all fax machines and it, it happened very quickly, 
but you didn't notice. But the fact is, is that one of these things is scarce and increasing in value. And as the globe adopts that thing, America's place in the global economy becomes less important unless we change what we're doing very quickly and we adapt. And this is the thing that I think people really don't clock is we are no longer the leaders of innovation, certainly not in the financial systems. We are no longer the leaders of innovation in quantum computing, that's Canada and maybe China and then UK. We are losing our place because of a lack of investment in education as the sort of the people leading the future. You should run on, maybe make some hats saying, make America great again. Hmm. Yeah, you know, so uh, a friend of mine who is friends with Bannon is one of the biggest guys in crypto. And he went to the inauguration and his hat said, make Bitcoin great again. Nice. With that, thank you, Richard, for spending time with us. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's been very fun and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Cool. Okay, so we spent a lot of time focused on the environmental impacts of Bitcoin. So let's spend just a few seconds on the common copper penny. Last year, the US Mint produced 8 billion one cent coins. That's 22,450 tons of pennies. In the US, 86% of the copper destined for consumer products was used just for pennies. The copper mining happens in Arizona, and I've visited these mines, and they have very significant environmental impacts, including sulfuric acid pits. And here's the kicker. It costs 2.2 cents to make a one cent coin. That's right. It costs more than twice as much to make a penny than it's worth. And you know how many of these coins got recycled at the end of their 25-year life? Zero. So if the penny can't be made greener, let's just get rid of it entirely. In 2018, we find ourselves caught between Bitcoin that ephemeral and yet sucking ever greater amounts of energy from the grid and penny coins that also have massive environmental impacts and are worth half of what they cost to make. I'm here in San Francisco trying to spend my frigging Bitcoin. It isn't easy. It's not easy, I tell you. So um, talking of easy, I'm going to start with uh, easy breezy. So here we are. So I'm not able to pay in Bitcoin, right? Yeah, no, not at the moment. And has anyone ever come in asking to pay in Bitcoin? Am I the first? Uh, no, <laughs> I've had nobody come in. Okay, <laughs> thanks so much. The frozen yogurt's excellent anyway. <laughs> Secondly, I'm going to try my uh, chiropractor, SC Therapy. Haven't gone to it in a while, it's downtown, but it says that you can use it, so I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to go see Laura, who's the receptionist there. She's awesome. So we'll see if we'll see if it works. Good morning, Nessie Sports Therapy. This is Laura. How can I help you? So what prompted you to start accepting cryptocurrencies? The Palace is a hotel across the street from us that has many Western European uh, patients for our office that use Bitcoin exclusively. So they, these are people who, who said we only use cryptocurrencies? Yes, we researched different Bitcoin um, vendors, and we went with a company that's no longer in business now. So did you get more interested in Bitcoin because of it? Oh, yeah, definitely. So what, what's the current status? You said now the vendor went bankrupt, so is that a sign of things to come? I mean, you never know. ATMs were not supposed to be the future, but look at where we are now. People are walking around with you know, chips everywhere and on their phone. So definitely it could be the future. Cool. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Have a great day. What I took away from today's episode is that unchecked, Bitcoin is going to have catastrophic impacts on the environment because of the ever-increasing amount of energy it takes to mine one Bitcoin. 
from a currency perspective, Bitcoin may quickly take over all other systems of money. But what's exciting and truly revolutionary is that blockchain technology is already fundamentally changing the way the world works and opening up sectors like energy to be much more democratic and transparent. I'd recommend checking out thesunexchange.com. It's a really innovative way to grow solar, and it's a quantum leap from previous financing models. Hopefully in this episode, we've been able to demystify the world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain. I know that David and I learned a lot. Next week, we'll explore citizen science as a way of safeguarding the world around us and as a means of holding government's feet to the fire. We figured episode seven was a good time to create Podship Earth pages on Facebook and Instagram, so please go and like them. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, Cape Town correspondent Dana Smirin, editor Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld, have a fantastic week. Podship Earth.